You're listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. This podcast is part of the CBLDF's ongoing education and program work. My name is Alex Cox, and in this episode, Executive Director Charles Brownstein interviews the legendary, foundational comics publisher Ron Turner. Mr. Turner is arguably one of the most important figures in comics in the second half of the last century, and he gave the world such titles as Air Pirates Funnies, It Ain't Me Babe, Inner City Romance, Slow Death Funnies, Barefoot Gin, Weirdo, Tits and Clits, Binky Brown Meets the Holy Virgin Mary, and many, many more, including some of the seminal works of the early and, uh, and high point period of the underground movement. Charles spoke to Mr. Turner from his office in San Francisco, and we are extremely lucky and appreciative uh, that he shared his time with us. This is a great interview from one of the most interesting personalities in comics recent history. So please enjoy this uh, informative and entertaining interview with one of comics' legendary publishers, Ron Turner. So you're telling me that the you had these foundational experiences with, um, with comics that turned you on to uh, social inequality and that, um, you know, kind of opened your eyes beyond the world of the, um, kind of impoverished environment that you, uh, grew up in. Um, can you speak a little bit to me about, um, how that informed your decision to actually go into the Peace Corps and what you learned going out into that, um, you know, into the world from, you know, growing up in Fresno and, and, you know, busking around the country? Well, I was already in, uh, you know, the coffee houses were happening. The beatnik era was upon us. We were uh, having great racial strides in the South with freedom buses and whatnot. But yet, here we are sitting in Fresno at an actual place of learning, Fresno City College. And I'd been on the football team. And one of the things that was the Christmas uh, dance was coming up. And... Uh, a couple of black women friends of mine on campus, and I said, I remember mentioning something like, so you're going to the Christmas dance? And they looked at me like I was, you know, an idiot. And I was an idiot because I didn't realize that uh, the dances at that college were still integrated, even though on campus were sending off people to go on the Freedom Bus rides. Mm-hmm. And I was washing dishes with one woman's mother downtown and uh, at the steakhouse. And I just, to me, it just didn't seem that that was that way. But then I remembered also that I was called in and chewed out by the athletic director for giving black guys off my football team rides home. It wasn't somewhat dignified for a white guy to be driving black guys home, according to him. And he'd even had the gall to call my mother at home and tell her that I was doing this. And I had to think, like, where did the, somebody with a mind come from that could even conceive of feeling they had to put that kind of pressure on somebody else for their own sick world? You know, it's, oh, it's mm-hmm. disgusting. And then who do you talk to? Because then you begin to believe that the entire structure above you is also leaning in the same direction as this horrible 
wall you just crawled out from under the sky. So, mm -hmm. so anyway, I remember we integrated the dance. Uh, about, there was these two brothers, myself, uh, one black guy, two black women. So there's about seven of us all came kind of together, and seven or eight, and we walked into the dance, and they said, you can't come in. I mean, not only were we integrating, we were like mixed couples as we walked in. And they said, uh, who's going to stop us? You know, I mean, I was a big, hard-ass football player, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other guys weren't exactly small. And I think we looked a little menacing to these pointy-headed little people at the door. So, and we walked. And after that, hey, it was integrated. And that taught me a great lesson that, you just go do something, and then it's over. It's kind of like the way gay marriage was here. You, mm -hmm. know, you do something, and it's way over. Mm -hmm. um, I had lots of... Uh, I, I felt really strong about the gay world also at the time. A friend of mine's... How visible was the gay world back... What are we talking, like 62? If you're in a small, small town... I just talked to a guy I hadn't talked to since 1954... And this is 19 or 2018. Uh -huh. Rudy. And I called up, I met Rudy's niece in a bar. I couldn't believe that she was from Fireball also. And I mentioned his name and she said, oh my God, that's my uncle. And she gave me his phone number. I called him up. You know. But I remember asking her, I said, did Rudy ever come out? And she says, oh, yes, he's been out for a long time. And I says, yeah, because I said, back then, I says, it wasn't, you know, he was like 6'3", very effeminate. But in a small town, nobody has secrets. Everybody knows everybody else's business. And you just let it go at that. And you say, okay, he's gay, fine, he's gay, you know. So it's like when you get, like, more in greater numbers of people, it seems that it becomes a social problem. Mm -hmm. And... Um, but anyway, it was just, uh, you know, so it was, seemed to be natural, normal. Some were gay, some weren't. You know, big deal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how much um, did your exposure to early comics, particularly stuff like the, uh, the EC comics, inform your attitudes about this when you were really young? There were many stories that dealt with social issues, some with racism, some with uh, nuclear uh, threat. And you have to remember, we were kids that had our, we wore dog tag chains around our neck in the sixth grade. We had air, we had drills in case the Russians were going to drop a bomb on Fresno. Uh, we had to hide under our desks. Uh, our dog tags had not just our names and addresses, but our blood types on them. This was the fear environment we grew up in. Mm -hmm. And then it started coming out that their, their radiation may cause defects as well. Well, we knew that in the Hiroshima bombings and the Nagasaki bombings. We knew about this, but we didn't know very much about it. And I remember listening to the radio when I was six, five, six, six years old. Not quite six. Um, let me just think for a second here. Yeah. And hearing Truman say that the world will note that the first atomic weapon was dropped on Hiroshima and then he added a military target and, and that just told us that it was okay because it was a military target 
it was not a military target. It was a huge expanse of normal people in little houses that you know, were carrying on their lives under an evil emperor. So all these comic book things led seemed to lead in a nice uh, form in good lines to a, a thing where uh, it said rebel, make people hear this stuff, should try to sh open the curtains, you know, show them that there's an Oz behind the curtain, not a reality that they're trying to lay on you. So that's... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were talking uh, in an earlier conversation with me about Judgment Day, the story from EC about the black astronaut that goes to the planet of the red and the and the uh, blue robots, or I'm sorry, the orange and the blue robots. Um, you know what? What did that do in your young mind and the young minds of you know your peers that went into cartooning? Well, it was so beautifully uh, scripted that you didn't realize until the last panel that the astronaut was black because he kept having a helmet on when he was visiting on this planet or you never saw his face. And until the la very last panel, it was just another astronaut, you know, guy goes and says, oh, whoa, you know, terrible things are happening on this planet. Then he realized, hey, this guy was a, you know, obviously had this had happened to him for so long in the past and he had a little tear running down his cheek in the last panel. In other words, we haven't learned the lesson yet. Mm-hmm. I remember a sign in Taft in the late 50s. My dad was working on a radio station there. There was an actual sign in the town of Taft that said, Nigger, don't let the sun set on your back in Taft. Oof. And I saw it. And the, um, the story there was uh, the town originally took its name from President Taft. And before that, it was called Moron. Town, and I can see why. <laughs> Whenever they try to talk about Taft, they don't like to refer to it as its original title, Moron. Uh, there's a little fake downtown of the pioneer days, and they do have the town of Moron above the post office. You grew up with this visceral understanding of injustice, and you worked, um, you know, just in, the, in your daily life. Um, you know, to address it. And then you heard Kennedy say, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And you're one of the first thousand Peace Corps volunteers. What did you experience? Where were you deployed? And how did that inform your worldview? Well, we trained in Philadelphia. We were picked. We, we, I just found this out like a, uh, a few weeks ago. We were picked for, on that project for our language ability. Although I, I didn't think I had much ability. I had learned to speak a little Spanish to my friends growing up because it was mostly a Hispanic community. Um, I took to German pretty well, but I had to drop out of German. Uh, so unbeknownst to me, I was pretty good at languages. and But I got assigned to a, a, teacher, a Muslim teacher training college that spoke Arabic and Tamil. And the language instruction was in Tamil. Tamil has 247 letters in its alphabet. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty tough language to learn. And it was okay. That was good. Very good to do. And I, 
still retain a bit of it, I'm, though I don't think I'm fluent anymore. Uh, but we were like pretty far out. I mean, we were, the first event I went to was about a week after I got to my college and we went off to see some Hindu festival where the men sat on one side of this kind of field and the women on the other. And the there was a bunch of Nagi swarms and various South Indian music instruments going. And, uh, and as I sat there, people came up and smelled me. Hmm. They'd not seen a white guy before. Mm -hmm. And also, they were very curious about my freckles on my arms. Mm -hmm. They thought I might have something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, you always have to, like, internalize things that happen to you and understand that they're doing this to you because this has been done to them. What were the experiences that you had that led to the culture shock of re-entering the States around the time that you became active in, uh, in publishing? I went, got back one of my railroad jobs. I worked on the railroad for five years as a brakeman, off and on. And you know, they talk about a bunch of old boy people. Or the crew clerk in Fresno, uh, real good, good old boy, really nice guy, got us to go over to, invite us over for barbecue. It's, they had, like many people, had swimming pools in their backyards in Fresno. And I remember diving off the board and coming up and swimming back towards the thing, and I thought, some funny stuff underneath the board. What is that? And I looked, and there's a couple of uh, Nazi symbols on the embedded in the bottom of the pool, on the wall, below the water. And then I began hearing these this music coming through, pumped through an underground speaker, and it's Nazi marching songs. Scott and his wife, really nice people. I go back there. I got to use the bathroom. I go back through, and I. Opened up a door, and here's a big Nazi flag and this other stuff. They were like a cell of neo-Nazis. You know? So like, weird. I know. And it's like, you know, but, you know, it's just day-to-day -day stuff. It's, he's the guy that calls me and says, hey, Turner, you're gone cold. Get out of here for your train, you know. Uh -huh. um, and you don't talk, you don't get into deep political thinking at the time. But good heavens, here's a, you know, just less than 20 years after the end of the war, you still got crazy guys being neo-Nazis. So is that the kind of stuff that attracted you to, like, get out of Fresno and head over to San Francisco for your grad education? Well, I, I actually got to grad school in Fresno, but uh, we had an underground newspaper there uh -huh. called uh, Flagrante Delicato, Caught in the Act. Flagrante Delicto, Caught in the Act. And it was, uh, I'll tell you how old school this is now, things have changed. This was done in mimeograph. Mm -hmm. Uh, trying to figure out how to be a news person as well as everything else. At the time, uh, I had a friend, Carol Gastanian, and she had the first beatnik coffee house. She had the first jazz club. She had a ding. She had a diner. She called the Ding Dong Diner. Uh, she had a head shop, first head shop in Fresno. Very avant-garde person. Mm -hmm. And she also had one of the first gay bars there. And she, people who had stolen things from her house came up and would show her at the bar and kind of laugh at her. She said, I want that stuff back. So she, after many complaints to the police, nothing happened. She went finally to DA himself and realized that he was a customer of hers. Mm -hmm. 
And this guy, his name is Bill Daly, and I, the story I wrote about him was called Bill Knightley. <laughs> um, Daly was uh, an extremely closeted gay guy who ran a, with a, his billboard showed him with his two boys and his wifey. There was a big scandal, and but he survived this, and I um, I started having my garbage unloaded and taken away, and I was being followed around Fresno. I figured it's about time I got out of here because mm-hmm. nobody wants somebody stirring the pot too much. So I get to San Francisco State. I got accepted in a special program. There was a uh, black students were having a, a thing there about having their own black studies college and curriculum. And other groups, the Asian American group was having the same thing. And the uh, Mexican groups were having the same thing. And there was a riot in which the bookstore was kind of robbed of a lot of briefcases and whatnot. Meanwhile, I'd, I'd gotten to be friends with a lot of these people, and we set up a, a fund. We wanted to somehow uh, pay for the damages to the bookstore, because as it turned out, apparently the, the state had not paid any insurance for their buildings, because the likelihood of anything happening to any of their buildings was virtually nil, so why should they pay the money for it? So when it came up that one got actually damaged, like the bookstore... Then they were calling for everybody's heads. They especially wanted to get rid of the Black Panther Party and the Black Students Union. And the, so uh, a bunch of us formed a group called the Non-Organization. And we held a big rally, and uh, I'd gone over the, the... I wasn't supposed to speak, but somehow uh, the guy who was supposed to speak got laryngitis, and I had to be a substitute at the last minute. So I ran over to the cafeteria... We got these old three-pound coffee cans of Folgers coffee, which used to be the awfulest stuff to drink <laughs> from the cafeteria. Had friends run around, and I, we, I just kind of talked about what happened and what we should do and sent the cans around to say, let's just pay for all this damage ourselves. I'm sure we can do it. That done, we ended up with uh, a lot of money. So what to do with the money? We hadn't thought very far. So the faculty was having a meeting, faculty only, and we marched in and marched down and went up on the stage and dumped all the money in front of all the president of the college. This was just before Hayakawa. It kind of worked. We just said, here, what are you guys arguing about? Here's the money, pay for it, and let's get on back to school. You know, the campus is being shut down. So that was like one of the first. So I got my picture of the paper for that. Were you informed at all by uh, the free speech movement coming out of Berkeley? Yes, my friend Pat Peebles, who was I was in the Peace Corps with, was at Berkeley after we got back, and he and I wrote letters to each other. This was before email. Actually, wrote letters, <laughs> and phone phones were too expensive to call up to Berkeley and back. Terrible. So letters were how it does, and so. We had a group in Fresno where we invited down a communist to speak on campus for free speech movement. Mm-hmm. And oh, people just, this would be, a, it was at Fresno State, and people were just appalled. 
and we would have a communist speak on campus. It was just really something that the Valley's very conservative, and this was like horrible. So uh, the only problem was that the guy who spoke had a stump speech, and he referred to it instead of saying like, "So good to be here in the Bay, you know, in San Joaquin Valley." It's so good to be here in the Bay Area. <laughs> and that kind of ruined it for everybody because he just lost his, he just, you know, just lost everybody's attention at that point. <laughs> but to us, it was more the, uh, you have to remember, it's always what's important is always the act, not the content. Having the act of having a, a communist speaker speak was so much more important than whatever the guy said. <laughs> what he said is immaterial. When kids are... Uh, protesting or whatever, it's the act of the protest that's important. Mm -hmm. That means people have come to the point where they feel this is another level that we now have to go to to get to communicate. Mm -hmm. And it's that way throughout almost life and almost everybody's arguments and bitches and moans. So I'm seeing an interesting stair step here. Like you bring the communists to campus in Fresno, you just say to hell with it, I'm going to raise the money to pay for the damages and dump it in front of the teachers in San Francisco. And then, you know, this somehow leads to, I'm going to raise some money for the Berkeley Ecology Center. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, how you came to um, decide, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to publish comics. Tell me about the origins of Last Gasp and how that came from your personal activism. Uh, uh, as employment, I was doing a lot of different things, one of which was working at Kaiser Hospital, doing studies in allergies and emotions. And my coworker Keith Alward lived in Berkeley, and he invited me to a New Year's Eve party one year. And we got stoned, and he handed me a, a fresh Zap comic book. And I read, and I was I'd gotten away from my comic books for a good 10, 15, 12 years or so. And I went, went stoned to do another room and I read the comic book over and over and over again. It just blew my mind. I just was so happy to be back in the medium of comic books, which I spent a great deal of my, my youth in. So, uh, I, I finally figured out where to, where to get them and I went over and I met Gary Arlington at his store. And, and we were on, uh, although I was working, I was also still a student at San Francisco State in grad school. And I was, at that point, um, my intellectual fortunes had turned around and I'd become head of the Honor Society for the Psych Department. Psych Department was 5,000 students with 57 professors. And as head of high, Psych High, I got to sit into the faculty meetings. I couldn't vote, but I always did. <laughs> and I'd have my thesis advisors and professors in the special program I was in, screaming, he can't vote, he's a student. <laughs> so things were getting a little fractious. Uh, but at night, we needed some relief after being on strike at state and marching around. And there were 2,000 police officers at the 19-acre campus, San Francisco State, during that time. And it was the longest student strike in U.S. history. What was the strike about? Strike was about... Uh, Again, mostly it was about Nathan Hare and the Black Students uh, Studies Program, uh -huh. and uh, the my one roommate at the time was a guy Roger Alvarado, who was a 
slightly larger but identical version of Che Guevara, and he wore Che Guevara clothing. And we used to come to school in my little black Volkswagen. And, you know, it was just kind of like all hell was breaking loose, we knew. And at some point, um, the strike ended. But by that time, we'd go in the spring, but in the winter, a friend of mine, Rod Freeland, who I'd known from the Farm Workers uh, Union, which I was a member of also back in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, was was being a printer at the Berkeley Ecology Center. And Rod was one of these wonderful men who would donate two years of his life, and then he'd stop being a donator, and he'd go back to work for money, and he'd save up his money and spend another two years doing something good cause. So he had been the printer at the Farm Workers Union down in Delano, where I met him. and uh, But now he was over there. And we'd get together on the weekend, smoke some dope, because our girlfriends were good friends, and we thought, what, like every other group, it needed fundraising. So what could make fundraising? We thought, thought we came up with the idea that a underground comic was probably the strongest propagandistic vehicle for the message of ecology at the time, because we could aim it at uh, all the way down to junior high level and up and try to give ammunition to people's... Uh, talking points about the value of ecology through the metaphor of the cartoon story. And then so we all sat down and tried to draw an underground comic, and we were worthless. So, uh, you know, so then it came out, and I said, I had been involved with so many groups at that time, I was burnt out at meetings. And nobody wanted to really do it. I said, look, I'll do it, but I cannot possibly answer to anybody. I'll be a benevolent dictator, but I will not go to a meeting and have anybody tell me what's going on. I just can't take it anymore. I think I know what I'm doing. So everybody was fine. They didn't want to do it. And so I did it. And then I got a, uh, of course, I went to Gary Arlington, who I knew already, because I bought comics, which we used to like read at nights after the rallies and the events and whatnot. And there was, a, there was a great comic relief. And what I realized was that, the, like Gilbert Shelton's Radical America comics, where he had a parody of the World War II movies, mm-hmm. you know, it was just, just perfect. And the smiling Sergeant Death and his merciless mayhem patrol. Right. And with this, when I go over to the, uh, I'd be there with the, the, uh, the Black Students Union guys, and they'd read it, and they'd be rolling on the floor laughing about it, too. And I said, perfect. So, anyway, I knew Gary. I went over and talked to him. And I, so I, I paid he and Don Donahue 25 bucks to be uh, on, on reserve to answer my questions and not. Don started comics with a guy named Charles Plymel. Don was a, a scholarly boy from... San Francisco, went to St. Ignatius High School, went to Cal Berkeley. And like poetry, it's beatnik poetry. And he met Plymel, who was one of the last of the beatniks, and he's still alive. And Plymel was doing broad uh, uh, sheets, uh, poetry and things, and he did some stuff with S. Clay Wilson. And they both had discussions around poetry readings 
and said that they saw this guy's work in this Yarrow Stocks newspaper out of Philadelphia named R. Crum, and they'd really like to do some of his work sometime. Well, Donahue runs into Crum at a party in San Francisco after he moved here. Brings him over to Lymel. Lymel's got this little printing press that he got from, Alan Ginsberg told me this story, that he got from, Alan gave him, had some grant money that he was able to buy this press for Plymel to do printings on it for poetry. Mm-hmm. And a little A.B. Dick press, and uh, or known in the business at that time as a shaky dick. <laughs> so the, that was the origin, the beginnings of, and it also crosses in into how the beatnik mm-hmm. uh, media goes into the underground comics media. Mm-hmm. So, and that was done by Frank Westlake, uh, building where Ply Mill had a space at, where the Zap Comics were done. That was, that was where? San Francisco or Berkeley? 2180 Bryant, my old space over there. Uh-huh, okay. Just next door to where we're at now. Uh-huh. And that was also where the psychedelic poster came from. Really? Uh, Frank Westlake had a, a hot press machine, printed up posters for the arts for the city, uh, for the ballet, for the uh, symphony, things like that for people. And then people came around and wanted to to do some posters for them. And he had this big old organ in the building as well. So uh, Stanley Mouse and Wes Wilson, all these guys would come over and get their poses. They'd always be on acid. And Westlake collected letters, like lead letters. Mm -hmm and other forms of uh, typeface. And they everybody fell in love with these big, wavy, carved wooden letters from Holland, such things. And that's where the psychedelic lettering pattern that's all <laughs> wavy and everything came from, with these guys on acid trying to draw these letters from their things. <laughs> so, sorry, that, that, that ended up being a little bit of a tangent, but like, so... That's okay, you, it's you a put, tangent that needs to be known. No, it's awesome. Uh, so you retained Donahue in Arlington um, to help you out figuring out the underground comics yeah, to then, develop this fundraiser. Yeah, and then I had to get some, some way to get the damn things printed. Mm-hmm. So Donahue agreed to do the covers, but of course he can do the guts... Did you already have talent lined up, or did they help you find I was, people? Um, I was going into Gary's store, so I, I'd become meeting a few people. Uh-huh. And uh, everybody seemed to like the idea about ecology. It was a very – the first ecology center that Rod Freeland worked at over in Berkeley was the first one in the country. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just very exotic, and we wanted to make it a good thing. And there was a bookstore there. And a dope dealer who donated money to the bookstore, who later became my business partner, <laughs> um, I got a hold of him and some other dealers, and I said, look, you guys have given nothing back to your community. I think that you should uh, loan me some money so I can get this project off. It's a good thing. And uh, so um, I don't know, but I don't think they knew what to think of me. Because here's some guy, and he's, you know, a total crazy activist with long hair, long beard, and talking a mile a minute. And uh, 
He's and he's not he's not a dummy. He's not like a you know a street guy. He's like, but yet he is. And but I'm laying huge guilt trips on him. <laughs> so I ended up with I borrowed twenty five hundred bucks, and I paid them back later on. But we had to find. It was interesting. The um, once the books were printed, the the guts and the covers were printed. They had to be bound together. Well, the bindery was a guy John Plowman up in Hayward, and he was a John Birch Society member. But being a, the libertarian types that they are, even though there were little flags in every uh, station of the uh, the binding process, uh, he totally disapproved of what we were doing. But he absolutely did do it because that was his job. Mm-hmm. He would do it. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting back those days. You had cooperation, but you had different attitudes. Uh-huh. So we got it, we took it, and I brought the books down to the Berkeley Ecology Center, and the Ecology Center said, gee, that's nice. And meanwhile, in the four months it took from the beginning of the concept of the idea to the printing the books, everybody at the Ecology Center had gone to jobs in Washington, where if you could spell the word ecology, you could get a job, or they went deep into the forests uh, to blow up PG&E towers. You know, different right. directions, but nobody was there anymore. So I said, here's your books. They said, what books? This is your benefit book. You, so you sell them 50 cents each. You make money. Right. I said, well, uh, I don't know. They were you know, di- a different group of people. They had no idea what I was talking about. As I said, everybody had gone. And uh, we said, well, you got to take them. They said, well, we'll take 10 copies for the bookstore. So I went back with the truck to my garage in Berkeley and dropped them in there, 19,990 copies, and had to figure out how to get rid of them. So I went around to Ripoff Press and to Printment, and they said, sure, we'll take them. And so they took them, and they said, but you can't sell it this, 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 and this. I said, what do you mean I can't sell it? Those are our accounts. Okay. Um, but you'll sell them there, right? Yeah, okay. I go back in a month or so, see how they were doing. They'd sold out. So I said, great, take some more and pay me. And they said, oh, but we don't have any money. Well, you got to pay me. He says, well, I'll tell you, we'll trade you our books for your books. They thought that was great. And I thought that was great also because a lot of stores could give a shit about slow death funnies. Or my second book, which was It Ain't Me Babe, which right. was all women's comic. And, but they certainly, their eyes lit up when they saw Zap or Freak Brothers. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was great. It was, here's a loss leader, and I'll put the other stuff in with it behind it. Mm-hmm. So within a few months, I had 200 accounts in the Bay Area. Because I was too stupid to realize that I wasn't doing it right. So yeah, you should sell your books in a comic book store, but there weren't. There was only one or two comic book stores right. in the world by that time, and there was a head shops. They took them, and that's that's the way it started out. So by necessity, so you published Slow Death, mm-hmm. and um, you're stuck with this. All of a sudden, you're a publisher. All of a sudden, you're you're a distributor. Was it just like knocking on doors at all of these boutiques and going, "Will you take ten copies of this?" Absolutely. Wow. Or will you take five copies? Uh huh. And so how did that lead to deciding, 
oh, this is a thing I want to continue doing. You know, how did this lead to you well, know? You have to think. I have to thank uh, Richard Nixon for this. Uh, Nixon, in order to start paying for the Vietnam War, uh, began canceling all the science funds, mm-hmm. which my job at Kaiser Hospital was funded through. Mm-hmm. That was a project that was paid off by a National Science Grant or something. So I was unemployed, so I'm drawing very little money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought of maybe going back to, maybe going off to the, go to the Goethe Institute, which I had wanted to do after my Peace Corps days, but I came back to a girl who promised me that she would still be there in Fresno when I got back, but of course I got back and she was living with a guy. So, um... Anyway, one thing I loved another is kept doing that, and we kept doing... We had another group called Committee of Return Volunteers, and we were very active in the international anti-war movement. And we sent... Uh, there were about 3,000 of us around the country who had been former volunteers in other countries. Oh, over in Berkeley, we had another, well, another group called the Venceremos Brigades, which was to train people to go to Cuba to be part of the sugar harvest down there. I helped train that. But with, the, with one of the people, Dick Fugit, uh, I sent along a stack of uh, about 25 underground comics, which he got to Fidel Castro. And Castro got back to him that it, of all the stuff he liked the most, he liked Crumb the most. I'm pretty good at getting comics to uh, overseas things. I, uh, over, I had a relationship with Jim Jones of People's Temple also, mm-hmm. and over time, because he found out that people would read underground comics that couldn't read otherwise, uh, over time I gave him over 4,000 underground comics that had black people in them to help with their reading program, and none of them ended up back at the People's Temple here when they went through for the auction, so they must have ended up in Guyana. How'd you come to get involved in um, It Ain't Me Babe, uh, which is looked back on as the first all-women's comic and was a you know signal you know piece of, of the women's uh, movement? Well, I, I lived and worked with with great feminists, um, so I was familiar with Trina from getting to know the comic people. So, but it was basically it was something that the time was really new because. Slow Death was, uh, since the ecology part was very obvious, there's only a few pieces in there that were by women. And uh, Trina had made, an art, other people, other women had made the complaint that why weren't more women in there. You know, does that sound familiar? Like almost, almost 50 years later. And I was all in favor of that. There was a paper in Berkeley by the name of It Ain't Me Babe, but Trina did a strip in the back called Melinda Berkeley. Uh, they're mostly feminist, uh, but also mostly uh, on the other side, the gender side. They're mostly uh, lesbians and who uh, were very, very active in Berkeley at the time. There was a whole big house full of women who lived over there. And after we got the book published, uh, they let me ha- use it, the space for storage and uh, some of it for those comics. So. How, how are these comics um, used by the activist communities that you created them for? Well, I don't know. I went around the country. I was like little little Ronnie Appleseed. Uh, 
Uh, I gave away like three or four thousand of slow death funnies. I gave away three or four thousand of innate me, babe. Uh, just you know, kind of like uh, kind of like starter yeast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we drive across country. I remember going to pick up uh, my girlfriend. Had to pick her back in Minnesota uh, because she'd gone down with the weather people and other people to Cuba and came back on a boat through Canada to get back to the U.S. and picked her up. And we were doing a, a protest of the 3M Corporation because they're, they were manuf- the Honeywell Corporation, excuse me, was manufacturing cluster bombs for Vietnam. And I remember we went back there to we were going to pick at the church of the guy who was head of the Honeywell. And we went there and we showed pictures to the congregation. They'd never seen the guy, but he kept claiming that was his church. And the police chief had become the mayor of Minneapolis. So we had some bruising um, protests there. And then I picked up Fran. And all the way out uh, with Dick Fugit and all the way back, we passed out. We kept moving to a town in the middle of the night and I'd just leave some comic books out where I would be sure that maybe some teenagers would find it or somebody mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. pick it up and be interested. Mm-hmm. You know, so guerrilla marketing, I think you'd call that. Did you ever get any results from that? Would people send a letter or a oh. postcard and you, you know, knew that it hit, hit dirt somewhere? Well, somewhere I did. I remember uh, Scott Carpenter had been one of our astronauts and uh, you know, one of the Whole Earth catalogs, Paul Krasner did, I think, one of the supplements to it. And he'd included uh, in there some letters that we got to the editor, Slow Death Funnies. And it was Scott Carpenter's daughter. And he, my main complaint with him was not that he was an astronaut, but that he was using his fame as an astronaut to pitch some, some horrible additive to your gasoline that they were like, that Chevron was mm-hmm. marketing. It makes your car run cleaner. Of course, it makes your lungs run dirtier. <laughs> and uh, so um, we, uh, so she wrote me a, a note, a letter explaining that her father was was a good man and a, a hero. And uh, I remember the last line was just perfect. It says, and by the way, his name is, our name is spelled Carpenter, not Crappender. So you had um, It Ain't Me Babe and Slow Death under your belt and uh, were active here in the San Francisco community and started to take on a lot more um, artists, many of whom were giving voice to uh, other aspects of uh, culture that weren't being explored otherwise. I'm thinking specifically of Guy Caldwell's Slow Death and uh, Justin Green's Binky... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm thinking specifically of Guy Caldwell's Inner City Romance and Justin Green's Binky Brown Meets the Holy Virgin Mary, both of which you know kind of illuminate um, lifestyles that weren't really being talked about, not only in the main culture, but in comics either. So what attracted you to that work and, and made you a champion for it? Okay, well, let's... I think, I think chronologically... Inner City Romance came out about 72. 72, yeah. And Guy had been, uh, grew up in Oakland. Bright, red-headed boy he was. His mom was a painter. His dad was absent, as best I could tell. He was very anti-war. 
very pro-peace, and he, re he refused the draft. He was sentenced to two years at McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington, which is a real hard-ass prison. And uh, so here you have a, a cute, redhead, pink-cheeked boy going to one of the hardest prisons in the country. You can only imagine what had happened to him in there. While he was in prison, he decided to become a painter. He had kind of fooled around with it. He uh, came out. And he went to work for, first thing I saw of his was a cover for Sundance Magazine. He came he came over to me, came through the doorway and handed me a comic book and says, would you like to publish this? And it was great. It was all about the first day out of prison by three former convicts. And then they take an acid trip and they have lots of sex and it's like, you know, it's like following a free, uh, you know, an id that finally gets free. And it was delightful, and the artwork was superb. So that led to the first of five underground comics under the uh, title Inner City Romance Comics. And one of them dealt with the I Hotel, which is the international hotel here in San Francisco, which was the repository of the Filipino community of... During the 1930s, there was a law in California that was the Asian exclusion law that said uh, you could come here on a work permit, but don't you dare bring any females along because they, you'll have family here and you, you know, you bring in. So they, they denied these guys a family, basically, the law did. We just So the I Hotel was a very important uh, struggle and it was people did not want to get out of there finally when they were finally evicted you know the city finally had matured enough to take responsibility and, and get a place for the most of the Filipinos had died by then but uh, still they had a place to live uh, but it was just one of those horrible times when our own government was turning on its own immigrants that helped build it so a guy tackled social issues and, uh, and I liked that a lot, so I, I supported him in that. He also did some other things that uh, he went on a peace march across the country. And uh, we, I remember, we, we, I think we sponsored his tent or something like that. But the peace march finally went all the way across country. And the guy also went off to Europe and Africa. He took with him his ability to do art, and he's got some wonderful things. And I think, in fact, at the end of this interview, we're going to go down and see his new art show yeah. tonight. Yeah. So, how was his stuff received when uh, you released it out into the 1972-1973 environment? Well, I think uh, as uh, you know, sex always sells. Sure, everybody wants to wants to rub peepees at least in their brain, and um, so they will pick the stuff up. But but that's it. If you have that, you know, if you start the dinner off with something bitter, uh, people won't like it so much. So you always start it off with sex. And, right. And they'll swallow that along with the message. There's always a little bit of a harder edge to the last gasp stuff as opposed to what was coming out of the other underground publishers. Uh, whether it was, um, you know, Inner City Romance, which has a lot of real uh, voice of the underside, underclass or, uh, you know, amputee love, <coughs> you know, is another one where 
you've got the salaciousness to get them in the door, but there was a message behind it. Oh, yes. Amputee love was great. Um, Renee had uh, both her legs removed, and uh, she had a girlfriend. And essentially what they did is they boiled down all their sexcapades over a 20-year period into a fantasy of a story that went in a one-way thing. And it took me a long time to figure out the humor that these two girls going across country in a convertible <laughs> and, and having sex with all kinds of guys. And Renee was wonderful and uh, used to uh, have to carry her down the stairs at the Magic uh, Club downtown beneath Earthquake Magoons. And she was just up for everything. And her... Uh, Husband, boyfriend who'd drawn the strip and had some sort of race car driver strip in the south that ran in some newspapers. I wasn't the greatest artist on the planet, uh, but I got Brent Boats, who was a, uh, a wonderful cartoonist from Canada and a good artist. He and Rand Holmes were the cream de la creme of... Uh, and George Metzger, mm -hmm. of the Canadian cartoonists. And he, he, I said, I want you to do the cover. Because I'd seen him, he'd done some, some cartoon strip of a guy with coconut shells and straps on his hands who was uh, legless and on a, on a cart that would you know, go around. The, I said, I think you could do this. You're, you're not, you know, you're doing a realistic, I want a realistic cover. So he'd do this wonderful cover of, of different forms of amputees and whatnot on the cover, looking like they were about to get into it, each other, but they all had the clothes on. Uh, but I, he said that he'd gone to, he wanted to study, make sure he had the limbs properly done. So he went to some place up in Canada where they sit in the back, and this guy, he said he walks in, the guy in a lab coat in the back, and he's tossing legs in one bin and arms in another. <laughs> and he comes in with his portfolio, all bright-eyed, <laughs> bushy tailed and the guy says wait hold it there there he says let me look at you he says it's the right one right he says no no I've, I've got all my store don't be shy son I understand it's, it's your right leg it's okay <laughs> I'll fix your right up says, no no I just want to draw them I don't I have my legs so it, that was a, a real shattering thing because it really reached we were getting a lot of guys back from Vietnam at the time and uh, you University of California Medical Center nurses, nursing school ordered 300 copies for their nurses because they wanted to show that there was still life after, you know, you didn't lose your sex, mm -hmm. your identity, and your purpose just because you had an injury like that. In other words, a lot of people don't understand that you may not be able to feel anything until you have your orgasm, but you can still have your orgasm because your orgasm happens up in your brain. Mm-hmm. And if you're not feeling that orgasm there, you've been decapitated, not amputated. So, mm -hmm. uh, so they wanted to desensitize their nursing staffs to the uh, horror of amputation. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, that was good. And uh, but then there was the kinky side of that that I hadn't anticipated. Got over 300 letters from kinky people wanting to know if we could hook them up or they had these different groups of amputee lovers around the country and so everything time we do a comic book or it did a comic book it was like 
you learned a lot more about the whole world that you're in. Right, right. And uh, so, yeah, so that was embraced quite well. It was also the first $2 underground comic. Hmm. So we had had to step it up because of all the inflationary price, you know, things hit us mm-hmm. at the time. Another one that gave a lot of voice, uh, you know, I'd mentioned it before, is Justin Green. Oh, my, yes. I, I always considered Justin the most intellectual of the cartoonists. And he just had a way of taking very, very complex issues and moral issues and entwining them and presenting them to you. So uh, I liked his little, little one-page things or half-page sometimes called Justin Green's Theater of Cruelty. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Justin uh, was working on this. He was having a hard time. I think he was going out with Bill Griffith's sister, Bill from Yao, Zippy the Pinhead, and uh, Nancy, was it? And they were uh, broken up and whatever. And I know I think one of he threw threw a bunch of his artwork into a fireplace, and uh, one of Crumb's girlfriends dug that out. But he was working on this great story. He was like working through a neurosis. He was fully admitted he had this neurosis, and he wanted to get to the end of it. And somehow I I don't remember the exact deal of the cards as it was, but the I agreed to supply him with groceries and some money if he would con- try to continue the strip. And there was no guarantee, we knew there was no guarantee that he would work through the neuroses enough to complete that comic book. And fortunately for me and for him, he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we published Binky Brown Meets the Holy Virgin Mary. Binky was a nickname for an uncle, so it was, of course it was Binky Green was his uncle. Mm-hmm. I think he draws his uncle and he and there, his uncle showing him how to cross swords when you're peeing into a toilet. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Art Spiegelman moved into Justin's apartment, and I helped him move at the time. And uh, Justin was leaving his desk there, and Justin, I remember telling Artie, Artie, you've got to move your desk at just this angle because the rays coming from Mission Dolores otherwise will interfere with your pages and you won't be able to draw <laughs> now, as a guy with psych training, you know this yes. must have been candy to you. Oh well, of course. But remember, I was uh, although I at my job at Kaiser Hospital, I had to learn to give Rorschachs and do a lot of psychometry and interviews and what psych interviews. Uh, uh, mainly, I was on more of the experimental psychology side. But no, it did. I really enjoyed it because it was a, a wonderful. Thing for those, especially Catholics, mm-hmm. to see uh, the horrible guilt trips that are put on them mm-hmm. in, in their growing up, and and how and how they resolve that. Mm-hmm. And the long tail of influence of that, you know, body of work is really fascinating, and I think you know not fully played out yet. It certainly influenced the whole generation of memoir comics, but. As graphic medicine becomes more of a field, it seems like there's a new discovery of that book, uh, you know, waiting to happen as well. I sure hope so. Um, we've got, I mean, we're still doing it as far as I'm concerned. We had uh, uh, a great book called uh, a graphic novel, not just a comic book now. 
if I could say that, not just a comic book, <laughs> uh, a, a fatter comic book called a graphic novel, uh, Arab in America, which is a the life of a Arab growing up in America, going through his coming of age years in America, at the same time as the 9-11 happened. And this is a, a very, very important book, I'm sure. And we're, we're happy with it. We're in our third generation of it now, mm -hmm. third printing. And we, we're waiting for our next book from him, which is essentially a, history, a brief history of the Middle East, mm -hmm. So, uh, which is entitled Baghdad Burning. And it's going to be out sometime this uh, late spring or summer. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to look at your current publishing, uh, that as well as the, uh, the new Barefoot Again program uh, that you guys are putting together. What is it about the, what do you think that these books have to say to modern audiences, and particularly modern audiences interested in social action? Well, I, th I think it's kind of, um, things have a way of being old and new at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you hope that you're still new enough to capture the interest. And uh, I, we've got a nice uh, laboratory that my grandchildren, my six-year-old is, you know, starting to take off with her reading, and I can't wait to let her read Barefoot again mm -hmm. and see if, or, or any of the stuff that's, you know, see how that takes with her. Um, Want to talk a little bit about the legal aspects of uh, underground comics and how uh, that intersected with you. Uh, there was the famous uh, snatch bust out at uh, Moe's in, in Berkeley back in 68. There were a number of other cases. How did the obscenity panic of the early 1970s affect the work that you were putting out? Well, you always had that kind of uh, fear, I think. Something would happen. There was a uh, City Lights got busted for Zap. Yep. And uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Lawrence, here's to you. You're on your way to your 98th year, you know, so more power to you. And the guy, guy is wonderful. And um, Moe's, I think, was busted. And um, there was also a gallery show over there. Yeah, the Phoenix Gallery was busted. Yeah. But I believe everybody came out pretty well. There was a bust uh, of Felch Comics. And as typical, I think it was election year, the DAs love to get these cases where the where nobody's going to come to the defense. That's why they like to bust prostitutes, drug dealers, whatnot, because they get into this moral or vice issue. And it's, um, there was a Young Lust, uh, funnies one up here in San Francisco at a head shop. And these vice cops came in. We were selling thousands of comics out of the underground head shop on Market Street. Thousands. It was great. And just couldn't keep them in stock. But the vice squad goes in there and they try to uh, intimidate the guy. He's an African-American owner. He was, he was not very intimidatable, but he was, you know, realistic because he had a head shop. And uh, the cops looked at this one that was like a, I think Jay Kenny might have drawn it. I haven't looked at this in 20 years, so I, forgive me. Uh, but I think there was a couple of cops in there. It was a parody, very sarcastic, about these cops and the thing. And I think I got to show the cop. You see, the cop is the good guy here. And 
you know, the guy was like dumb as a box of hammers. And he, he was so happy. He, was, he, had, he had civic pride. He was seen as a good guy in this comic book. So he, was, he walked out of the store, you know. Mm -hmm. like, um, and yet they had the, um, the two, those two cops were great. One was, uh, one was Jewish and one was Christian, but the Jew had become Christian, the Christian had become Jew. So they were already were like crossing their wires and yeah, right. plugs, you know. It's like, um, and usually what happens in a police force? It seems like they, for the vice squad, and I'm going to get hell for this, I'm sure. Um, but they tend the cops are a little wacky. They put on there because they can do no harm if they bust somebody in vice. Somebody's accused of a vice. Nobody comes to their defense, so they can't do anything wrong, basically. You know, so, so we had vice to contend with. They were always going around trying to... So they picked on this store, this uh, comic store in Long Beach. And in the comic store, they took almost all the guys' comic books. You know, a lot of comics. But they mainly were like after things like Felch comics. And Felch had come had become a thing because the underground cartoonists had been done, doing probably like Snatch Comics and Jizz Comics and Snatch Comics. And they just were like lampooning sex, mm -hmm. you know, like the old eight-pagers in a way. And everybody says, oh, you do dirty comics, you do dirty comics. I still get that from, my, I went to my 58th, we had a 58th reunion because I graduated in 1958, so I thought that'd be cute. And the first thing that I say as I'm walking in the door, everybody else has sat down for lunch already, is Bob Parkman, our old buddy from high school, says, he's at the mic, and he says, oh, here comes Ron. Hey, Ron, you still publishing them dirty comics? Yeah, it's just, you know, it's like... Anyway, so they have no, you know... They, they, they like to read the big labels, you know. Yeah, so, right. So they don't read the contents or the ingredients. <laughs> right. So they get up and the judge says, present your evidence. And everybody's pretty pretty full courtroom. And uh, Your Honor, we'd like for Exhibit 1, uh, Felch Comics. And Felch had become, as I said, they... I'm tired of being called do dirty comics. He says, you want a dirty comic? We'll do a dirty comic. Mm -hmm. It's called Felch. Fine. So it was a dirty comic. And they start going through the big pasteboard box. Jay says, gentlemen, have an old day. Come up here with the Felch. Give me the Felch. Don't you have any Felch over there? <laughs> Guys keep plowing pulling comic after comic out of the box. They got comics all over the table. Your Honor, we can't find the felch. Somebody, of course, had pinched it from the uh -huh. evidence room at the DA's office. It was too good to pass up. <laughs> and case dismissed, right? No felch, case dismissed. Bang. Wow. But how much did the did the um, like the Zap conviction in New York and just the Miller versus California guy? How much of that 
affected the crash as it affected your business? See, were these the second Sundays that Phil Suling put together, the old comic book things? And Phil Suling was a, a junior high school teacher, I yeah. think. And he had these comic book things called Second Sundays, and he was selling Zap Comics. Zap number four had a um, 60, it was called a 69 cover. As you halfway through, you'd turn the book around and you'd have to read it from the other end, in the middle. And what that did, that launch, that was the actually caused the saving grace of the, of the straight comic book industry. And the reason was, was that because of that bust, Phil Suling was fired as a teacher, and he had to do something. So he started a distribution company, and uh, some people from around here um, were, try were doing what we called ground-level comics. Mm -hmm. They weren't underground, they weren't above ground, they were ground-level. Uh, Mike Friedrich, a few other people, Star Reach was. And so they were basically black and white undergrounds without any sex in them. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to uh, get those distributed and get suing. And they went to Marvel and filmed. Uh, they used the structure for the discounting at 60 off for distributors. And because before then, Marvel and DC had been selling comics to stores at, you know, at 30 off, returnable. Right. And they said, well, how much do you print? How much do you know? Why don't you print it up at non-returnable? Then you know exactly what you printed. And you get your amounts beforehand, so you print it up so there's no loss. So you can give that bigger discount and you make more money. Well, they bought it, and so Phil became the big distributor of all the stuff to these fledgling comic book distributors that began popping up around the country as comic book stores began to rise up around the country. Mm -hmm. So if that zap hadn't been done, I don't know if we'd have the same world of comics that we have now. Right. How old did you know Phil? Didn't know him much at all. Uh -huh. Just met him a few times. And what about the big, um, like Kitchen talks about, Dennis Kitchen talks about how um, 1973, his numbers just fell through the floor. Yes. Um, you know, how, how did that crash affect you and what do you attribute, um, you know, the reasons, you know, behind that crash? Our sales went off 80% for four or five months. Uh -huh. I was just about to throw in the towel. Why didn't you? Stubborn. Uh-huh. How'd you pull out of it? Oh, God, I don't know how we pulled out of it. It was just really hard. Um, and in the middle of it, uh, uh, I had to get uh, my partners who, uh, their backgrounds were, their families were OSS spies from World War II who got moved over after World War II back to America. They were East European. And uh, they were told by somebody in the middle of the night to get rid of the vest. Mm -hmm. And when I told them, I said, like, well, uh, excuse me, but I'd like to buy it. Why? Why would you want to buy it? We're getting out of it. No, no, no. It was mine. I started it. I eventually took you guys on as partners. You know, and I want you out of here now and all. 
So in the middle of all that, with no money, I had to like somehow go out and borrow more money to pay back again to get, to get full ownership back of the company. So I don't know how we got out of it. Dennis is right. That uh, was a horrible time. Essentially, it was that the inflation had started. The war was uh, just about over. And um, I think we were diversifying. I was selling a lot of... Uh, we had a, a, a marijuana organization called Amorphia. We were selling those papers mm -hmm. and starting to sell... Uh, bongs and things like that to, to the head shops started to like fill in getting a few paperback books in to sell here or there so I was expanding to meet the needs of my customers and see what they wanted so you know the um, head shop would want a how to grow marijuana book mm -hmm. um, I don't know it's just kind of like going to, for the Try to see what the trend was and, and anticipate it, get ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. That's unfortunately how you do it. You know, you can have, my, Ron's rule is that you can do fine until you have four failures in a row. Mm -hmm. And you're out. <laughs> Unless you're a trust affarian or. Right. Well, it's interesting that throughout the career of Last Gasp, the ethic has always remained, um, you know, pretty consistent. You started with these socially aware books like Slow Death and It Ain't Me Babe and you know as things rebounded in the in the 1980s it was you know anarchy comics and um, you know some of the more adventurous stuff uh, you know in Weirdo um, you know and even today you know Barefoot Gam has um, you know got a social message to it so it's just very interesting to see that there's this consistent underlying ethic of providing a space for these uh, stories that are a little bit outside of the mainstream that, you know, have something to say about the future. True. Interesting. Now, you know, you talked about people see that label of dirty comics. Now, if we reflect on the underground movement, you know, what do you think people are taking from that today as they recontextualize it? Are they taking the right stuff? Are they taking the wrong stuff? What do you want people to see in this work as we evaluate it in the 21st century? Well, I, I don't know that all the work we've published are uh, lofty ideals. Although there it's is... It's hard to find it in Horny Biker Slut, maybe. Yeah, Horny Biker <laughs> Slut. Uh, a title I am proud of, in, of uh, creating. Well, John Howard's artwork was, was brilliant, and his buddies, but the, uh, uh, I thought that was the perfect title. And she male trouble. But under, you know, okay, the sex is there. Again, the sex is the, uh, and the, the sweet treat is the appetizer. And then you get into the real issues of, uh, there are bikers, there are biker gangs, there are bi there's a whole biker culture, and at least the culture, of, or ment mentally the culture of the vagabond or the rebel that's off on his motorcycle, it's, it's almost an archetype in our culture. And I wanted to really look at that and see if that made sense. And also those, and those who are in that culture are very harassed by the authorities. And so there was a uh, kind of along Wilson's line of uh, uh, Ruby the Dyke and her, you know, and her 
biker pals and how they're anti-authoritarian, say with Checker Demon, rebel. Um, but also then we got into she-male trouble, which is, uh, you know, kind of predated the, uh, the gender clash of uh, this last decade of transgender people. In which, although it's, you know, really, uh, it's way too much of a shine on it the way that we showed it off, uh, really gets into the fact that, they, hey, these are real people and this is what really happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the criticism that, uh, that works, like you're describing, you know, take on. I mean, I think about how a younger generation of cartoonists, you know, look at Crumb in this way that he's anathema because of his racist uh, depictions in their view. Um, how, how do you consider this work, um, you know, from, from your perspective? Crumb's, like anybody, has got his quirkiness about his belief systems. But when you put that, his pen to paper, you're going to get some very, very, very well thought out truths, I think. Uh, he's not a, a, an ignorant guy when he's laying something out for you. Mm-hmm. And um, super bright. And I think sometimes he almost teases people that way. You know, know, in other words, he comes up to that cliff, but he doesn't quite go over it. Mm -hmm. And if you're coming up behind him and you don't stop fast enough, you will go over. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just a couple more questions. What what are some of the victories and mistakes that this generation of activists, artists, and publishers should consider... Um, when they are considering your generation's work, what are some of the victories and mistakes you guys made that they should be mindful of as they're going out on their own? Well, one of the great advertising guys, one of the original Mad Men, was a underground cartoonist by the name of Willie Murphy. Willie wrote the Mets theme song back in New York for his advertising agency. He uh, did a lot of that stuff, and he came out here, smoked himself to death, but did some incredible comic books and. And um, Willie uh, was from advertising, and we rejected advertising. We didn't have a we did things on a purity level. We didn't take and put advertising into our mostly it was like parody advertising, if anything. Uh, so as a result of that, we didn't have a, a cash flow with each issue. Had we done that, probably. Comics would still be sort of writing in some form or another on a regular basis. Also, we didn't publish on a regular basis. Crumb said that was the one big difference he saw between regular comics and underground comics was that regular comics don't come out regularly. We broke that mold a bit with doing Weirdo, which we did 27 issues. And mostly on a, we started hopefully being a quarterly, but I think we came out semi-annually for a while there. And um, but once you have a, a an issue going, it, it keeps its base. If you skip a long enough time in between your next issue, you've lost it. They just people just don't go back to that store and look for it anymore. And uh, so so that would be an error there. These are just practical matters. Right. And so what our legacy is, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to given what goes on today. To be able to look back and see how exciting and um, 
mind-boggling some of this stuff was when it first came out. You know, you look at it today, it's ho-hum, you know. I've seen that before. Well, why did you see it before? Because it had to be created somewhere. Why don't you get horrible diseases? Because you got your vaccinations back. Right. You know, how can you appreciate that little, oh, I have my arm sore. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> your arm sore. Great. How, how would you like to be in a festering pile of pus? Right. You know? And besides that, even if we told them exactly what it was, they wouldn't believe us or hear us anyway. You know, we're, we're going to be leaving from here to go check out a retrospective of Guy Caldwell, um, you know, at the same time as there's these beautiful hardcover editions of Zap and these beautiful hardcover editions of women's comics and museum retrospectives. So, you know, this whole movement's being canonized. And one of the things I always like to find out is what are the human things that you want people to know about this period? You know, strip away all of the loftiness of, you know, how history interprets it. You know, what was at the core that motivated you and your peers to do what you did? I think we wanted to not be told what to do. We wanted to express our ideas. We had these thoughts in our brain. We wanted them out. Um, The Air Pirates comics, for instance, uh, I published those in secrecy. And... Dan O'Neill and the Air Pirates, Bobby London, Gary Halgren, Ted Richards, and to a certain extent, Sherry Flanagan, uh, all said, you know, they had these ideas in their head and they just wanted them out of there. They, uh, and this was the only way to do that. So I think it was like the creative freedoms that, that drove a lot of people to do this. And once the once they said, "Well, sure, you can do this," then it was like I could watch a lot of people almost go through a stepping stones of thematic issues. There'd always be the there'd be the early rebellion, the parental rebellion, the um, teenage love. Uh, there'd be the Radicalization, there'd be the uh, cop fight, boy fight, uh, hippie, uh, somebody with, you know, all the symbols would always be there. It seemed like cartoons. So when I look at people's portfolios, thousands of them over the years, uh, you kind of see this trend going on. But all that's fine, but they've got to work through these things in order to get to the next thing mm-hmm. themselves personally. That's their own freedom that they're, they're being driven on. And then I see the Finally, they start getting into the more pure, unfettered imagery. And, and that's when you start getting the beauties of things. That's when you start getting the Mobius mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know? And some get kind of like hacky in a way, uh, or they think they do, or their fans think they do. But I think not. I think that once you get into that sailing area, that might just be that that's your landscape. And occasionally they'll stop and get a closer look at what's in that landscape but uh, but they've already come up to the, you know that mountain path in their in their valley now is that pretty enough for you it's a, it's a it's a pretty good stopping point i appreciate it all right well let's go look at some more okay. we'd like to thank mr turner again for sharing his time and his history with us 
for more information on Last Gasp Publishing, I would recommend you check out their website, lastgasp.com, which is a good resource to see their current line of books and offerings. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we depend on donations from listeners like yourself to maintain the work that we do. You can donate by visiting cbldf.org and clicking the Donate banner. Uh, you can also check out our current work and see what we're, we're up to at that website. It's updated daily. This podcast and all of our education programs are made possible by a donation from the Gaiman Foundation. If you'd like to support in other ways, I would highly recommend and ask that you go to iTunes and rate us. That helps other people find the podcast, and it uh, is gratifying for those of us that put some work into it on this end. You can also uh, tell your friends by sharing this on social media, if that is your style. Either way, we appreciate it, and we appreciate you listening. Thank you very much. Thank you.